I wish there were not many persons in the present day affected by this disease, but nothing is more common than this saying, let them first perform miracles and then we will lend an ear to their doctrine. As if we ought to despise and disdain the truth of Christ unless it derives support from some other quarter. But though God were to even overwhelm them by a huge mass of miracles, still they speak falsely when they say they would then believe. Some outward astonishment would be produced, but they would not be a whit more attentive to doctrine. It's sad for me to read that things have not changed much since John Calvin's day. In that quote, Calvin is lamenting how many people refuse to believe in what he and others taught because, well, there just hasn't been enough proof. And if you could give me some miracles, if you could show me that God is on your side, well, then I would believe. And not only does Calvin lament this idea, but he knows something really important, that even if we were to grant their request, most of them still wouldn't believe. We could give them more miracles, we could give them more evidence, and still many of them would not take that next step into faith with Christ. But apparently was it not only new to us or to Calvin, but it wasn't even new to Jesus. Jesus himself dealt with people who simply refused to move past his miracles and into saving faith. Would you open your Bibles to John chapter 4? And we're going to read verses 43 through 54 together. John chapter 4, finishing off this chapter. When you are there, I would invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word. John chapter 4, verses 43 through 54. Thus saith the Lord, After the two days he departed for Galilee. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in the Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better, and they said to him, Yesterday, at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that that was the hour when Jesus said to him, Your son will live. And he himself believed in all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. This bars the reading of God's word. Please be seated. I don't know if you caught it, but our text opens up with a difficult tension, if you want to use the politically correct word. Others might say that there is an alleged contradiction in the Bible right off the bat. Right? Jesus tells us, he's, remember, he was in Samaria and he preached the gospel and saved a bunch of Samaritans. And now he's going to go back to his home turf. Go back to the Jewish people. The Samaritans were not rightly considered Jewish people. They're Gentiles. He's going to go back to the Jewish people. And John clarifies, he's going to Galilee for he himself has testified of this old adage that a prophet has no honor in his own home country. 
Now, I know the ESV, as I read it, says hometown, but the word in Greek there uh, can be rendered as hometown, home city, home country, home region. The context just determines that. And I think if you have a different translation, it probably says something more like home region. And I think that those translations got it right. I think the ESV is making an already difficult problem far more difficult by claiming that Jesus went back to his hometown, which is Nazareth, while the text says he went to Cana. They're both in Galilee, but he didn't go to his hometown, but he did go to his home region, the region of Galilee. And John tells us that a prophet has no honor in his home region. Jesus has no honor among these people. So it begs the question, so why is he going there? Why is that the reason he's going? He's going there for he has no honor there. And then to make matters worse, once he gets there, he's shown honor. He goes to the region for he has no honor there. And then when he gets there, they welcome him. Like what on earth is going on here? To my surprise in my studies, there is an incredible number of ways that Christians have sought to harmonize this idea. Uh, typically when I see these tensions, there's usually like two or three. Um, this is a passage that I would argue has well over ten. And so I'm not going to give you like a survey of all of those today. But I want to say from the outset, alleged contradictions like this don't stress me out very much. The contradictions where it's like one from one author and then one from an author who wrote a different book in a different culture hundreds and hundreds of years later, those can somewhat be a little bit more alarming because that's where we would expect to see if there were contradictions in the Bible, I don't believe there are, but if there were, that's where we would expect them to see, right? It's really hard for two people to match their stories up when they're writing hundreds of years apart in separate cultures. But to assume that John contradicts himself twice in one sentence, I just find that really hard to believe. Um, and to think that no one caught it. John didn't have a problem with what he wrote. We have no textual evidence that there were changes to this part of the manuscript. No one who copied this letter had a problem with what John wrote. Really, none of the original audience, including John himself, had a problem with these two sentences. And so I think it's very likely that there was something in John's sort of culture, in his day and age, where this all made perfect sense. And then over the years, I think that has gotten lost in translation. So we're, we're missing pieces here. They weren't. It's just, it's really unlikely that John would be so contradictory in such a short time span and no one would ever see it. So I, I don't think there's a contradiction here. But how we sort of make sense of it, like I said, there's really not one definitive answer. But I've, I've picked one that I think makes the best sense of the overall context of this passage. And I think that to begin understanding the solution, we do need to see that Jesus went to Galilee precisely because he does not have honor there. And the reason that makes sense is because of what just happened in Samaria. Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. He came as a Jew for the Jews, and yet right now it's the Gentiles who are worshiping him. Uh, the idea is this, now that Jesus and his disciples have seen so much fruit in the, among the Gentiles, among the non-covenant people of God, they're saying, this isn't right. The covenant people don't believe in you. The, the Gentiles, the dirty, the uncircumcised, they do. We need to go make this right. Let's go back to where we don't have honor and get it. So Jesus is going because he has no honor there. He's going to get the honor that he rightly deserves, that he got from the people who shouldn't be the ones honoring him. 
And so I think that kind of makes sense of the first part. But how does it make sense of the second part? How is it that John can attest that Jesus believes he has no honor among these people, yet when he gets there, they welcome him warmly? How do we make sense of that? Well, on my interpretation, the warm welcome Jesus receives is not synonymous with the honor he claims to be lacking. In other words, he did not receive honor when he got there. In other words, we tend to assume that if you don't honor someone rightly, then you must despise them. You must hate them. But I don't think Jesus is working with those definitions. You can like someone, you can appreciate someone, but still not honor them the way they might deserve. And so I think what Jesus is getting at, what John as well is getting at, is yeah, these people liked Jesus. They appreciated Jesus. But they have not given to Jesus what the Samaritans just gave to Jesus. And that's what he's worthy of. They appreciate him. They like him. But they don't honor him. And here's, I, there's two reasons I think that this is exactly what's being implied here. One is a little more subtle, the other more explicit. The first one I think is baked into verse 45 because of the qualification. Look at what verse 45 says. So when he came to Galilee, so we're supposed to be experiencing the dishonor here. Here's the proof of the dishonor. The Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast. For they too had gone to the feast. One of the themes you should have already been picking up in John from John chapter 2, and it's going to be prevalent in John 5 and in John 6 and throughout the letter, is the way John, one of John's themes is that there are too many people who are stuck at the miracles. They've seen Jesus' miracles, and now they like the things that Jesus can get them, and that's, that's where they're going to go. John is trying to tell us these people are not excited that the Messiah has come to Galilee. They're excited that the miracle worker has come to Galilee. And that's dishonor. They're excited because the guy who gives us free candy shows up. They're not excited that the Lord has shown up. They have not given their faith in Christ the way the Samaritans do. They like him. He's a fun miracle worker. He's exciting. He's cool. He gives us cool things. But when it comes to Jesus, that's dishonor. But I think this is very, very clear, especially in verse 45. I think there's a way of interpreting, or forgive me, forgive me. I think this is especially clear in, in the, uh, the scenario that we see, which makes up the bulk of this passage, which is the way Jesus responds to this official who needs his son to be healed. So let's go back and kind of reread that, and then we'll bring this to its climax. Look at verses 46 through 47 with me. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So let's stop there for a moment. So a man comes to Jesus because his son is so sick that he's, he's dying. He's, on, he's at death's doorstep. And the text describes this man as an official. It doesn't give us a lot more information. We don't know all the details involved in this. But what we do know is that an official was a government authority. So this was a, a, a guy high up in authority. Most likely, this was someone who worked closely with King Herod, who was sort of the governor over this region. So this is one of Herod's men. And so why might that be important? Because here's what it tells us. He probably had top of the line health care. 
probably had better health care than the people in Canaan did. He's got resources. He's got access to all sorts of things. And guess what they've done for his son? Nothing. We're supposed to see that this is a man who's, who's truly in a pit of desperation. In other words, we have no reason to think that he would have gone to Jesus as a first instinct. This is probably his last instinct. Nothing else is working. May as well try, I don't know, there's some rumor of some guy down in Galilee who performs miracles. Let's give it a shot. What do we have to lose? So this man comes to Christ in desperation and he's coming to Christ for what? Nothing spiritual. Just heal my son. I need a miracle. Now, we are so used to Jesus being presented as the kind and caring and compassionate Jesus that his response might be a bit shocking to us. Like when you hear a story of a, a, a desperate man whose son is dying, approaching Jesus with tears, please heal my son, you're probably expecting a sympathetic response. But Jesus rebukes him. He rebukes him. Look at verse 48. So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Now, there are some interpreters who will interpret this as not a rebuke. It's just a statement of fact. Jesus is just saying, oh, well, you'll believe if you see miracles, so I'll show you a miracle. But I think that's a, a poor case to make. When you look at this expression, you need signs and wonders to believe uh, throughout the John, it's always used as a, as a rebuke. It's always a, a, a frustration on Jesus' end. Jesus is rebuking this man. But what's interesting is when Jesus says in that verse, it says, so Jesus said to him, so he's talking to this individual, but then here's what's interesting in Greek. Unless you see signs, that you in Greek is in the plural. Uh, we lose this in English because we don't have a plural versus singular you. The context just sort of depends upon it. But in the Greek, there's a clear difference between the you when you're talking to an individual in a group. So even though Jesus is talking to this man, he's actually trying to address everybody. Jesus sees in this official um, a prototype. This, this man's spiritual condition is not just characteristic of him. This isn't just a personal problem. Jesus sees in this man the spiritual condition of all the Galileans. The dishonor that this man just brought to Jesus, Jesus says, this dishonor, you just dishonored me. And it's not just you. Everybody dishonors me. Jesus is rebuking the nation in this man. There is the same spiritual condition. And what I think Jesus is rebuking is this continual demand to see sign after sign after sign saying only then will I move into faith but they never actually do. Jesus is upset that this official and the rest of the Galileans have not responded to the miracles they're already aware of. They already saw a multitude of miracles at the feast. They already heard about and saw the turning of the water into wine and yet here he comes and what are they asking for? More miracles. Heal my son, please. Give us more wine, please. In other words, they have not responded to the miracles the right way. For Jesus, the purpose of his miracles is to simply open you up to something more important, which is the gospel. 
Ultimately, it's supposed to be Jesus' word. It's supposed to be his gospel that draws us to him. But you see, the Jews continue to refuse that step. When they see Jesus, they merely see a miracle worker and nothing beyond that. And so this causes them to continually demand miracles from Christ, saying, well, maybe we'll believe if we just show us the proof. We just need to see the signs and the evidence. But they keep saying that. <laughs> they keep getting it, yet they keep saying that. This man should be coming to Jesus now at this point for eternal life. He should be coming to Jesus and asking how his son can be saved spiritually before they prioritize the physical miracle. Jesus is saying, it's time for you to come to me, not for wine, not for healing, but for salvation. And yet you still just want the wine and you still just want the healing. They stop at the miracles. And by the way, the reason I really think that that's the right way to understand Jesus' rebuke is because, not just because of the context, but remember what's on the heels of this context, which is the example from the Samaritans. Let's refresh our memories. Let's read verses 39 through 42 again together. Where did Jesus just come from? Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So, when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. That is the exact right response to the miracles. You notice Jesus doesn't have to give the, the Samaritans sign after sign after sign. He gave them one single miracle. And you could argue it's not even the best one we've seen so far. He gave them probably the least of his greatest miracles so far. And all it took for the Samaritans was one. And they immediately went from, wow, this guy must be special. Stay with us. We want your presence. We want your word. And it was no longer the miracle. They don't believe he's the savior of the world because of the miracle anymore. They believe he's the savior of the world because of what he taught us, because of our presence with him. One miracle brought them to Christ, and then they received him and cherished him because of the gospel. They explicitly say, it's not because of the miracles that we believe any longer. It's because of his word. It's because of his gospel. It took one miracle and they said, we treasure this man and what he has to say. And they no longer think of him as the miracle worker. They think of him as the savior of the world. And then Jesus goes to Jerusalem. What does he hear more? Give us more miracles. Give us more miracles. They're not interested in his presence. They're not interested in his word. And so why do the Galileans dishonor Christ? Because they have a contempt for his word. They like his miracles. They don't care at all about who he is or his message. They're not interested in the gospel. They have a contempt for his word. Now, there's good news. I know it's been kind of harsh up at this point. There is hope for them. Because I would submit to you that Jesus' rebuke was more compassionate than it seems. Let's read verses 50 through 54 together. After the rebuke, Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. 
As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better, and they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever had left him. The father knew that that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. And he himself believed and all his household. So Jesus, even though he rebukes this man out of love and compassion, he nevertheless chooses to honor the man's request. And he, he even honors it in an even greater way than the man was asking for. As you see, the man had such a little faith in Jesus at this point. He thinks Jesus needs to be there. Jesus says, I can do long distance healing. He asks him twice, come down, come down. And Jesus says, no, he's okay. Jesus goes above and beyond his requests. He heals his son right then and there from long distance. But isn't it interesting? Why is it that all of a sudden this time, this is a man who, who, who's heard of Jesus' miracles. That's why he went to him in the first place. Yet there was something about this miracle that brought this man to a Samaritan faith. He repented of his Galilean faith. And he now has, put, has a Samaritan faith and he's led his whole household into it. And I think the rebuke is that key reason. Because Jesus opened his eyes to the problem so that he could now finally take that last step. Because of Jesus' rebuke, when he saw the miracle, he knew, I can't stay here. Jesus healed my son, not just for the sake of healing my son. There was a greater purpose to this healing. He wants me to move beyond this. And so he places his faith. Now this nobleman, like the Samaritan, sees Jesus is not just some miracle worker. He's the Savior of the world. And so there's hope. That the rest of the Galileans will take this step of faith to move beyond the miracles, to move beyond the gifts, to move beyond the, the signals to what they're actually pointing at. But unfortunately, as of now, they're still stuck on the miracles, which is, from Jesus' perspective, an abuse of Christ. It is a dishonoring of Christ. And so, you could argue that the message for our sermon is kind of simple. And this is a reminder for us not just to love Christ, but to love Him rightly. To love Christ for the right reasons. Our commission as Christians is to cherish Christ as the Savior of the world, the Son of God, the Messiah. Another way to think about it is the most precious thing about Christ needs to be Him, His gospel. It must be that he died to save us from our sins. His miracles and, and all of the other temporal blessings that we receive, we cannot allow these things to become more important than him and the eternal life that we receive through faith in him. Jesus Christ must be our God and our Savior long before he's our miracle worker. And that might sound kind of simple, like, yeah, I've done that, I get that. But I would, I would just challenge us, we need to be careful, because I, I actually think there are very prominent ways where people who fly the banner of Christian are actually not doing this. One of the ways is what is sometimes derogatorily referred to as charismania. An extreme movement within the charismatic tradition. Uh, if, you don't, if you're not familiar, a charismatic is a Christian who believes that miracle workers still exist today. That there are lots of people who have the ability to raise the dead and to heal the sick and to manipulate nature. 
And so oftentimes you can tell a charismatic church because their church services will be filled with these alleged miracles. They're speaking in tongues and people are getting healed and they're trying to perform all these miracles in church. And, and so I'm not trying to indict every single person that you might know who is a charismatic. I'm not saying every charismatic does this. But there is undoubtedly a movement within the broader charismatic movement that has essentially turned miracles into the gospel. They're obsessed with them. That's all they talk about. That's all they think about. That's all they desire. The most obvious example of this is a pretty famous church in Redding, California called Bethel, led by a man named Bill Johnson. And I would go so far to say that this is a cult group. And this group has overemphasized miracles to the point that, quite honestly, I used to listen to a lot of his messages. There's no gospel left. Miracles are their gospel. And they believe that Christians ought to be experiencing supernatural miracles every day. And it's only because of our lack of faith that we're not doing this. And that more and more people would be coming to Christ. And, and the, Christian, the kingdom of God would come if we would just stop being so stiff and start working miracles. Jesus promised us that we, his disciples, would do even greater things than he's done. Why aren't you raising the dead? Why aren't you speaking in tongues? Why aren't you literally moving mountains? You can and you should. And if you were to do that, how many more people would come to Christ? But I'm going to go so far to say that that's actually not the purpose of how miracles are to be used. As a matter of fact, I'm going to go even further and say if your faith needs constant reassurance from miracles that it's not saving faith at all. You don't need to be worried about people losing a faith that has to be supported by constant miracles because that's not the faith Jesus wants you to have anyway. That's a Galilean faith. You want a Samaritan one. The Samaritans didn't need constant everyday miracles to understand and cherish Christ as the Savior of the world. It only took one. It's the Galileans thinking, if we just had more signs, we would believe. If we just had more miracles, we would believe. And that's the faith Jesus rebukes. Jesus is not interested in people who need miracles to believe. If you don't believe me, consult the official in verse 48. Ask him what he thinks Jesus thought of his faith. Yes, miracles can be used by God to help prepare people to receive the gospel. But they are not the gospel. And once you do come to believe in the gospel, you really shouldn't need miracles anymore. Because you found something better. You've not given up the great for the less great. It's the other way around. The gospel is better. For the Samaritans, Christ's word was more precious to them than his miracle. The gospel is our hope. The gospel is our treasure. Not miracles. But the charismatic miracle workers are not the only ways that I think this Galilean mindset manifests itself, reincarnates in our age. Another very obvious example is a movement known as the prosperity gospel, which a lot of people think because we don't use that term anymore, it's not around, but it is alive and well in this country. I, as a matter of fact, I wouldn't be surprised if most churches that classify as mega churches are subtly or not so subtly preaching, teaching, and promoting the prosperity gospel. And if you're not familiar with that, well, that is essentially saying that Jesus' will for each and every Christian in this life, not the next one, but in this life, is to be healthy and prosperous. 
So if you're not rich, there's something wrong because you're supposed to be. And it's probably your fault. If you're not healthy, there's something wrong because you're supposed to be. And it's probably your fault. So maybe you could start being more faithful or start tithing more. And God will reward you with riches and he will reward you with prosperity because it is God's will for each and every Christian in this life to be healthy and prosperous. Now there are a legion of errors to the, this false gospel, but I'm just going to focus on the one that's relevant to our text today. And the most relevant error of this false gospel is that it, it, it demotes Christ from being the end itself into a means to a different end. Christ is no longer what we want. He is the necessary vehicle towards that which we want. Jesus essentially becomes just a big vending machine in the sky. If I pay the right amount of money and push the right buttons, I'll get what I desire. This gospel encourages a selfish idolatry of the gifts above the giver. The prosperity gospel breeds this very mentality that I want the gift, I want the miracle, and I guess Jesus is my way there, so I'll take him. That's a Galilean faith. That's not a Samaritan faith. Health and cars have become more important than God and eternal life. Money and designer clothes have replaced the partaking of the divine nature and being made like God. And that's no gospel at all. That's actually how you dishonor Christ. Even though they'll say great things about him, the prosperity gospels, they're big fans of Jesus. They'll say great things about Jesus. They're not against Jesus at all. But Jesus would say, I have no honor among them. And by the way, there's an interesting application that we can sort of conclude on. As we, as, as we are called, re reminded to, to love Christ rightly, to, to love him for the right reasons, all of this really sort of, if you're looking for a practical application, this is kind of what gives you the ability to thank God for your suffering. Uh, Bethel and the prosperity cults, there's no room in their theology to be thankful for suffering. But we actually have room for it in our theology. Because for them, suffering always means you're doing something wrong. This needs to be fixed. You need a miracle. You need to tithe more. But you see, we believe that God actually uses suffering in this life. And I would say, relevant to this text, one of the greatest benefits of suffering is that it reveals what you most truly desire. I submit to you, as, as harsh as it may sound to some, any person who abandons the Christian faith in light of hardship and suffering prove that they never really had faith to begin with. Maybe a Galilean faith, but not a Samaritan one. Because they never actually treasured Christ and his word above all else. Instead, they celebrated this lifestyle that Christianity afforded them. When Christ ordains our sufferings, he does so to reveal our honor or our dishonor. In other words, here's the logic. If you truly cherish Christ and his gospel above all things, you have no need to forsake him when you lose all things. We've seen someone in our own midst who has loved Christ through ALS. 
We've seen a husband love Christ through his wife's airless. You know what that means to them? Christ is more important than their very bodies. Is Jesus still worth following when you lose your job? Is he still worth following when your spouse is unfaithful? Is he worth following when you get a phone call from your doctors that your child has cancer? You see, the blessing of suffering is that it reveals to us what our hearts truly desire. It is in the crucible of suffering that we truly learn just how sufficient Christ and his promises are to us. It is in suffering that we come closest to the Samaritan faith that says, I've lost all things, I've lost the world, but I have Christ in his word. The world can take everything from you, but the one thing they cannot take from you are the promises of Christ. Nobody can take the gospel from you. They can take your body from you. They can take your house from you. They can take your health. They cannot take the gospel. And so it is when we lose all things that Jesus reassures us and says, you see, it was far more precious to you than you even realized. What are the promises of the gospel? You see, in a sense, the prosperity mentality is true. It's just way too early. Suffering is not this eternal thing we've been called to. The promises of the gospel is that Jesus is the Savior of the world. That while you lose your health and lose your money and and lose important things to you, you've lost something that goes beyond that. Your sin. You've lost your sin. What's better than that? The gospel is a promise that we have lost our sins, that Jesus is the Savior of the world, that he will resurrect you in glory one day. And that all of this is by grace, apart from works. You can't earn it. That's why we love Christ. That's the message that makes us fall in love with Christ. He is the God who saves us. We don't love him because of the miracle worker. Yes, he does work miracles, and that's great. And it should draw us closer to him. And yes, he gives us material blessings, and we shouldn't despise those. We shouldn't reject those. We should thank him for those. And they should encourage and engender with us a stronger love and desire. So I'm not telling you to hate Christ's gifts and to hate his miracles, but I'm just warning us not to make them into idols. The blessings of this life, the miracles in our life, are to draw us back to doctrine, to Christ's gospel. And when we trust Christ and his word, when we don't have a contempt for his word, but we trust his word above all other things, then with true integrity can we come together and sing, when peace like a river attendeth my way, or when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well with my soul. How could a person in their right mind possibly sing those words? The song answers it because of the bliss of this glorious thought that my sin, not in part, but in whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, O my soul. 